0: The threat of imminent destruction was hanging over David and his royal servants. Racing towards David's palace from the city of Hebron to the south was Absalom, the self-crowned king of Israel. You could call him a peacock, beautiful man evidently. And he had a robust army with him, primed to usurp David's rule in Jerusalem. King David and his royal entourage were scuttling out of the city through the Judean wilderness, fleeing for their very lives. With lust for David's kingdom in his eyes and with hands eager to shed his own father's blood, Absalom's horses thundered nearer and nearer the confused city. Meanwhile, David and his men trudged wearily down the Judean wilderness slopes towards the fords of the Jordan River to cross over to the other side for safety. Gone for David was the comfort and joy of the palace, and in its place was the scorching sun high above his head, the dry cracking ground underneath, and some kind of laborious exile ahead. David's mouth was parched like the arid land surrounding him, but it really was the dryness of David's soul that was his main concern. Behind him was the city that he loved, that he had established as his capital, Jerusalem. And the tabernacle, which he had had brought to Jerusalem for the worship of God. He met with God there in joyful times of worship, in splendor, thinking of the greatness of God. However, behind him also was his ambitious and his arrogant son, Absalom, who wanted to usurp his rule. David, of course, was pierced to the heart by Absalom's hatred. I'm sure he felt betrayed by some of his countrymen who switched sides. He was under not just physical, but spiritual attack. There was an emptiness inside of his soul that cried out for filling. I think he was at one of the lowest points of his life. Have you ever been there? The lowest point of your entire life? Remember, this was no weak or inexperienced man, David of Israel. Think about this guy. David had confronted many opponents previously. Fighting was hardly anything novel to him. He who had conquered tens of thousands of Philistines and had been acclaimed even greater than King Saul. Oh, he had learned the art of enduring hardship and overcoming difficulties, even through his years as a shepherd, beating back a lion, killing a bear. And then he was a skilled warrior in Saul's army. Yes, even severing Goliath's head. Who could say they had done that? He knew how to handle the enemy's pursuit out on the trail. But how was David going to handle his own son's rebellion? Where was he to turn to in his hour of both physical and spiritual need? How could the abiding peace that he once knew still reside down deep in his soul where he wanted it to be? How could he quench that fierce thirst of his soul in the midst of a dry and a weary land? Where would you turn in your hour of greatest spiritual need when you have been betrayed, when you have been put down, when you have been neglected, when you were dumped by the side of the road, so to say, and forgotten. And don't tell me you don't remember that time because you'll never forget that time. You'll also never forget the person that came to help you at that time, right? What do you turn to to restore spiritual vitality down in your soul when all else has seemed to crumble under your feet? When you are in the midst of despair, The feeling can be overwhelming to the point that it seems not only is there no help coming now, but you're not sure help is ever going to come to you ever of the kind that you need. Despair, driven by unbelief, always results in tragedy. But David was a believer. He believed in the Lord his God. David had faith. And so he did not let his despair drive him there. The proof of his faith is Psalm 63. Psalm 63 was written by David. It was written in a wilderness. You say, where was the Bible written? And here's something that was a poem, a song, that was written probably out in the wilderness as he fled from the presence of his own son, Absalom, who wanted to kill him. Talk about... Tough circumstances. In 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 6, it gives the historical background to the psalm. There it notes that Absalom had stolen away the hearts of the men of Israel from David. Add David had been king for a while. Maybe he was getting complacent in the palace. An older guy, people not connecting with him. And so the younger guy steps in, steals the hearts of people, and now wants to what? He wants to rule. Good looking guy, tall, long, beautiful hair. You got the picture, right? Can't compete with that long hair. In chapter 15, verse 10 of Second Samuel, it says he blasted the sound of the trumpet and Absalom was declared the king. Where in Jerusalem? No, too close to David. How about down to the south in Hebron? And so we read in chapter 15, verse 30, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went and his head was covered and he walked barefoot. He's in mourning as he leaves his city. Psalm 63 reveals what was going on in David's mind at this time. David was reflecting on his trouble. David was also reflecting on his trust in God. You got to do both. You can't just reflect on the trouble. You got to also reflect on the trust you have in God, or you're going to get stuck in the mud and you're not going to go anywhere. Now, some have interpreted the psalm here, the context of this psalm, in other words, what prompted the writing of this psalm, as when David was fleeing not from Absalom, but from King Saul out in the Judean wilderness. However, if you look in the latter part of the psalm, in verse 11, it shows that David was probably already king by the time he wrote the psalm, and that fits better with this context with Absalom. When Saul was chasing David, David was not yet king. Verse 2 also indicates that David had access to the sanctuary. What does that mean? The tabernacle, an access that fits better historically with his kingship in Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 15 and verse 23, it indicates that at the time of Absalom's rebellion, quote, the country wept with a loud voice and the king himself crossed over the brook Kidron toward the way of the wilderness. That's the Judean wilderness that is adjacent to Jerusalem. How many of you have been to the land of Israel and have seen the Judean wilderness? Let me just see. You know how, I mean, we talk about wilderness. This is the wilderness of a wilderness, right? This is like where you really look for one blade of grass and it's hard to find it. It's white. I mean, it's chalk. It's dry. The beauty of this psalm affords us a glimpse into the heart of a man, a a godly man under pressure, under distress and despair, as we look at him in the worst of circumstances. What's he thinking about? What's he saying? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, God said that David was a man after his what? Own heart, right? Wow. Not a perfect man, but a man who wanted to know God. A man who wanted to draw near to the heart of God. I would say to you, that's a man worth learning a little something from. It lets us know here where David turned in his hour of spiritual need. It also lets you and me know where we can turn as well. So already read it for our scripture reading, but I'm going to reread just the first five verses Again, to put it in our mind, there's a lot in here. We're going to take a couple of weeks to meditate on this because I think it's so spiritually nourishing and satisfying. I just really want everyone to to grow deeper in their personal devotions and their love for God from this. He says, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. As David was able to seek and find the deepest satisfaction in God, we too can find that same quench for our souls. Really, we're going to ponder two meditations. And these are meditations. That's what they are. They're things to ponder, take slowly, think about, let it kind of get down into your soul, let it impact you, let it change the way you think of God. Maybe redirect the course of your heart a little bit. Meditations, two of them. They're found in David's heart. I want to put them in your heart as we're thinking about these. And they both come from the first five verses. First is the description of one who longs for God. What's, what's someone who longs for God sound like? That's verses 1, 2, and the beginning of verse 3. And then the second meditation is the blessings that come to somebody who longs for God. What does he look like? And then what do you get out of it? Why, why should I take time longing for God? What are the blessings? That come from me. And that's sort of the middle of verse three, uh, through to the end of verse five. Let's consider the first vivid meditation: the description of one who longs for God. Look back at verse one here. And really, if as you think about this here, David is genuinely bearing his heart. He's bearing his heart so we can understand his spiritual truth. And even in this first meditation, I'd like to break it down further because really we get three descriptions of a person who longs for God. Three descriptions of someone who longs for God. First, he is a person who earnestly seeks God, listen, in the midst of difficulty. It's very easy to say you're seeking God when everything is going well and you're going to a great concert and you're with all of your buddies, you know. You got front row seats, you're feeling good. Uh, Everything in life is going well. You got the money. You got the friends. (laughs) Everything's going well in church. And you're like, yeah, I'm going for God. I'm a worshiper of God. Look at me. I'm talking about a person who earnestly seeks God right smack dab in the midst of difficulty. That's verse 1, right? So really, if trials and difficulties, pressures and tragedies, these cursed world realities... Do not drive someone who longs for God away from God, but what do they do? They compel him to come back to God. Would you agree? It's as if you put a huge straw into the cup of the divine and someone wants to suck as much out as they possibly can. Like when you go to a food place, I used to tell Sue, I'm a big straw kind of person, you know. I don't like paper straws, by the way. They don't taste right. I like the plastic. I don't care what they do with it afterwards. I'm sorry. I just don't. And I want a big, thick kind. I want to suck hard. I want to get all the vanilla out of there that I can or chocolate or whatever. When it comes to things of God, you don't want this little thin straw, you know. You want something big and you want to suck long and hard and get as much as you can. Do you think you can get to the bottom of it? Do you think you'll run out? You know you get something and you're like, I want to savor this for a while. No, forget that. Suck and keep sucking, and you'll find out that there's more in there than you can handle. Much more. That's God. You know Dr. John Piper's famous and well-repeated statement, God is most glorified in us when we are most, what? Satisfied in him. What are you satisfied in? Sports, music, business, stock market going up. It's different for different people, right? That's where we tend to find our satisfaction. It's interesting that God lets us, He lets us have that a little bit, doesn't He? And then it runs out and we're like, not so great after all. I think I'll bounce to something else. And some people spend their whole life bouncing. They're like Tigger, boom, 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 and they're on to something else. And now they're into, you know, they're into, airplanes, or they're into, you know, yoga, or they're into whatever they're into, and they bounce until they find satisfaction. What they're really saying is, I can't get no what? Satisfaction, no matter what I do. Well, David is crying out to God in the midst of his distress. I love it. Consider his first words. How did Jesus tell us to start our prayers? Our Father who art in heaven. This one doesn't start that way. How does it start out? Let me look at that. Oh, God. Oh, God. Have you ever had a prayer start out that way? That's legitimate. That's good. That's intense groaning. That's real. I think that's actually one of the best ways to start preaching when you're in a time of greatest need, right? If really your, your tongue is lagging like that, maybe that's where you need to start sometimes. Oh, God. Why aren't you listening? You read Psalm 13 recently. Wow. Psalms are real. Oh, God, it's honest, it's true. Say, how am I supposed to pray when I go to my quiet time? Well, how about that once in a while? By the way, this is a side note, but sometimes in your prayers, as I listen to your prayers, just take this as a small thing. Don't take this as as a big thing. This is not a big thing, it's a small thing. Just think about it. Some of your prayers sound exactly the same all the time. Our Father, oh good Father, oh good God, oh Jesus dear Jesus. And it's the same thing repeated, a boom, 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 Lord, 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 Lord. Nothing wrong with that. Lord's nice. Jesus is nice. Father is nice. How about varying it up a little bit? Do you know how many names there are of God in the Bible? Do you know why all those different names are given so that you could think of God in all kinds of circumstances? How about once in a while starting out Jehovah Jireh or once in a while starting out, you know, Oh Lord, God, master, king of the universe or something like that. Think about his names and the meaning behind his names and what he does because of those names and inject them into some of your prayers. It adds variety. It shows that you're thinking about the one you're talking to and it's not just always the same thing. Just think about that small thing. To a man in the midst of troubles, a God who is way, way, way out there, who's all-powerful and majestic, who crushes the head of demons, How's that going to help me unless I can say, oh God, look what he says next. Thou art my God. not some God way over there. He's claiming God for himself. Do you do that in your prayers when you're in distress? Oh God, you are my God. My God. Here we have a delicate truth for mature believers that David could be earnestly seeking God while at the same time already possessing God. Did you catch that? This is the mark of a devout man who seeks God, what? Even more deeply than before. He wants to know him even better than before. He he wants a big, giant guzzle of God. He loves what he tastes. Now, you've been polite, in polite society before, right? How do you like my drink? Oh, it's wonderful. You didn't like it, and that's why you're putting it on the edge of the table. But when you taste something you really love, it's like pass it around, open up the tab, let's drink this thing. This is absolutely great. This is wonderful. More and more. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is mediocre. Is that what it says in the Bible? He's good. God Tastes good. Now, I know sinners don't like the taste of God, but as you yield to God, you'll find that I really like how he tastes. <laughs> I really like it. Young people think God is boring a lot of times. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is Satan lying to you. That's what I thought when I was 16, 17, and 18. Church, God, religion. <laughs> You know, literally in the pew like that. When does the Redskins game start? We were allowed to say it was the Redskins game back then. We're not allowed to say that anymore. Since and then it's over. Okay, we're out of here. Mom, dad, let's go, let's go, let's go. Because God himself was not interesting. God himself did not taste good to me. I was an idiot. See, there's hope for you if you think you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> The longing that David had here is not that of a stranger to taste God for the first time, trying to train his palate towards God. It's the eagerness of a friend to be in touch with God once again, someone he holds dear to his own heart. David was approaching God by faith because he had experience with God by faith before. You have to do that. There is no other way to grow and deepen in your relationship with God if you do not approach him by faith. Ain't no other way. Now, somebody comes up with a few little things for you to do. Here's your little religious mantras that you do, or here's your little activity that you do. Run from that. That's false religion. If it's Christian, it's not Christian. If it's Muslim, it's not Christian, (laughs) obviously. If it's Buddhist, it's not Christian. There's no such thing as a Buddhist Christian, by the way. But to be Christian Christian, that is biblically Christian, You've got to deepen in your walk with God by faith. It has to have faith as part of it. There's no other way. Hebrews 11.6, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. It is his confidence that God is listening to his cry that compels his prayer out in the wilderness in the first place. Otherwise, why wouldn't David just say, wow, I served you all these years. Now Absalom is coming to kill me. What's the point? I give up on you, God. I'll just get the best I can out of the next few years of my life. I'm going to get mine. And that's it. But he didn't do that, did he? He's out in the desert. He still has the assurance that God cares for him and that God hears. Next, he tells God what he needs from God. Why is David drawing nigh unto God? I shall seek you earnestly. Yes, if you're keeping tabs, we're still only in verse 1 at the very beginning. But how important is that? I shall seek you earnestly. What does David want? Well, What do you want in your life when it starts to wind down? What is it that you want to be able to say that you accomplished and you did? Well, here's a pretty good one. I shall seek you earnestly. He wants to be near God. He wants God to strengthen him. How? He wants the presence of God. He wants to experience God in the true biblical sense. Sometimes we believers want something from God. God, I'd really like for you to give me a better job. These people that I'm working with are such a pain. Dear God, I'd really appreciate it if you'd allow somebody in my family to get saved because it's tough being a believer all by myself in this extended family, particularly around Thanksgiving and Christmas time. Oh, dear Lord, in the heavens, what I would really like is, and then you fill in the blank, and we want something from God. Is that legitimate? Of course it is. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. We have to have persistence in prayer. We have to check what we're asking by the will of God and Scripture and all that. But sometimes what we believers need to ask is not something from God. We just need to want God himself. David just wants God. What's his request? Give me God. God, that's enough for him. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What are you gonna get out of this whole religion deal? Answer, you're gonna get a portion. What's the portion? What am I gonna get? You're gonna get the kingdom of God. What am I gonna get in the kingdom of God? Answer is you're gonna get Jesus. You're going to get God. You're going to get the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is no casual prayer. It's a focused and an intense search for God, for his help, for his presence, for his satisfaction. The root of this verb translated earnestly, shakar, in Hebrew, is related to the Hebrew term for the dawn. You know, like early in the morning. That's why some of you may have in your translations, I will seek you early as in the morning. But really the emphasis of the word has more to do with the desire and the zeal of the seeking rather than the timing of it. You can look at Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15 or Proverbs chapter 7 verse 15 for some samples. It does not mean that David was seeking God early in the morning. That might have been, but that's not the thrust of it. It means he was seeking God diligently, earnestly, with great effort, with determination. Do you think of your prayer time like that? Your prayer time just started. Click. What's happening during that time? Is it three interruptions by the dog, two by the children, one by the phone, three by your texting? Oh, look at that. Seven and a half minutes went by. Is that your prayer time? Or do you shut and block out All distractions, nobody come near me. I have a meeting today. It's a very important meeting. Who are you meeting with? I'm meeting with the Lord, my God, the Savior of my soul. And I want some time only with him. And if I got to get outside and I got to get to another place and I got to be all alone, and even if I have to be a little bit rude, you know what? I'm going to do it because this is more important to me than anything. Well, granted, he had the advantage of being out in the wilderness, but hey, he's king. There are a lot of interruptions for a king. Often you share your struggles to have a meaningful and enriching prayer time. I know the men on Friday, now Saturday morning, set goals. Good. Set the goals. Beautiful thing. Get some accountability for your goals. Wonderful. But often what happens is you write it down more like kind of like a wish than a goal. You know the difference? You don't really want the accountability. If someone who's supposed to hold you accountable does not call you and remind you, you're okay with that. Why? Because you had another bad week. you don't really want to change, you're not pursuing God. Kind of reveals more about our heart. Well, we just don't have time in the busy society. Pastor, you should know this. I know you get to read the Bible all day long and get paid for that. But those of us, we have to go out, and we have to do stuff. And then COVID came along and you're like, okay, how's your prayer time going? It's really about the heart, right? It really is. Come on. It's really about the heart. You could be in the midst of the most severe circumstances. And you could be bombarded with people relying on you for all kinds of things. And if you wanted to, you could get alone with God and have earnest prayer and seek him earnestly. What should I seek? The power of his presence. His purposes in your life. The bounty of his joy, the joy of the Lord is my strength. How about just seek to learn how to have a more humble heart? So easy to be proud. So hard to be humble. Just work on that. How about just this? Confess all your sins. (laughs) Start going through them as confess them all. I hate it when people accuse me of something false because I got enough true sins that they could accuse me of. Why don't you start there? You want me to get you started? <laughs> I'm angry too often. I lust too much. I doubt God too much—doubting Thomas—and I don't want to be that way. Confess it, and then work through it. How do I? How do I go beyond that? Pastor Gabe mentioned that he wants our church to have an atmosphere where people feel they can, you know, they can confess their faults, and there will be grace there. And because we're all kind of going the same way, I think that's right. We need to be able to say, you know what, I'm just not where I want to be. But we also don't want a church that just says, ah, and we don't care whether you ever grow or not. We all are in the same boat. We all want that boat to arrive on the shores of glory, you know. So we're all encouraging each other in every way we can. Recount God's blessings is another thing you can do when you seek God earnestly. One by one, do you write them down? You want a great Thanksgiving time this week? Just start there. Start just writing them down. And then as you write them down, you get a little smile on your face, you know? It's like, oh, I remember that. One of the greatest exercises spiritually is to remember how how anxious you were at one point in time and how it really bothered you. And you're really concerned about this situation or that person. And now you're, what, six months beyond it, 12, two years, and you're looking back and it's almost embarrassed to think about it. Oh, my. Because it all worked out so well. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit to his lifespan? I'm going to be anxious. Go ahead. No, I'm going to really be anxious. You're going to see God. I'm going to to get really anxious. Okay, go ahead. What's it going to do for you? Did it make you live longer? Nope. Did it solve your problems? Nuh-uh. What did it do for you? It made you anxious. It didn't really help you at all. But focusing on God during prayer time, seeking him earnestly, That's going to work. Listen, there's no mystery here. You have shallow prayer times because you want to skim the surface with God. You want to rush out into your day. You're a doer. You're a checklist person. You want to get that stuff done. It's for the Lord, you know. But you want to stay in your comfort zone. You want to arrange the pieces so they all fit just the way you want it. Because then at the end of the day, you can say, now that was a good day. Why? Because you controlled it, or at least you thought you controlled it. Isn't it good that God doesn't let us control it so we can be reminded, you're not really controlling that much anyway. We all need the determination of Jacob, who wrestled with God. Imagine that. There's a theophany of God, and you're actually wrestling some bodily form of God, and he lets you win. (laughs) He lets you win. And he wrestles and he says, I will not let you go, God, until you, what? Bless me. My vast determination. Well, David has intensity, but his intensity is thirst. Thirst. Intense thirst leads to intense drinking. I wish we would all be mighty in drinking. (laughs) I can get really quoted poorly on that one, can't I? (laughs) Not the foolishness of man's ale, but man's spiritual drink. Ephesians 5.18 says literally, be being full of who? The Holy Spirit, who's that? Spirit of Christ, who's that? God. The third member of the triune Godhead, as he relates directly to the individual human being, brings regeneration, brings fullness, brings teaching and awareness of biblical truth, brings sanctification. That's the Holy Spirit. Drink him. Drink him fully. Then you look back at the alcohol and you go, what a waste of time. What was I thinking? Or anything else that you might drink in a metaphorical sense. I I guess I'm going to pause right now and just say, if you've been listening to me preach so far up till now, it really is not making any sense to you. It might be because you haven't yet trusted Jesus as your personal savior from sin. It might be you're hearing all of this, but you have some religious background, maybe you're baptized as a Christian, but you haven't asked Jesus, please save me from my sin. And you haven't turned from your sin, a life of sin. You haven't really believed that Jesus is your master and your Lord. So you're kind of ruling and running your own life. But when you come to believe in Jesus and give up the right to rule your life, you put yourself under the authority of the Bible and trust in him. He'll save everyone. He'll wash away every one of your sins and save your entire soul right on the spot, right immediately as a gift, not as something that's deserved. You just need to believe in him. He'll save you. He'll come into your life. And what I'm saying to you will begin to make sense because he'll create even more thirst in your heart for him. It says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, this is a promise for you if you're not sure you're saved yet. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's a miracle, then God will save you, it says. You will be saved. So get saved and learn God and you'll see a growing intensity to want to know him even more. Like David, his pursuit of God is so intense. He says, my soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee. Beautiful. My soul, it could also be translated my life. Uh, my soul, my whole life thirsts for you. I have to take a lot of medications now. and One of the things that it does is it makes my mouth dry all the time. So I'm thirsty all day long. I'm always sipping something. <laughs> Think of yourself when you've been out on the basketball court in the midst of July, you know, and it's a three on three tournament and the guys are going hard and you realize, you know, you're down 10 points and you're pretty thirsty and you reach for something that's cold and wet. Right. You just guzzle and guzzle and guzzle because you so desperately need it. That's how it should be with the Lord. Right. That's how it should be with the Lord. David is expressing the heart of a father that's devastating knowing that his son is leading a rebellion against him. It's it's a king knowing that he's hurt because of all these people taking up arms against him. He's looking at the arid land surrounding him and he's saying, now that mirrors the thirst in my soul right now. How terrible it would be just to say, I thirst. Do you remember who said that on the cross for us? The Lord Jesus, right? Right? One of the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus on the cross, what did he say? I thirst. He did that for us. I thirst. It'd be like that guy in one of the commercials who's going around in the desert and he's saying, water, water. But there's no water. How terrible that would be. I think it's fair to say that most people these days try to quench their spiritual thirst with what you and I recognize as a poisonous substitute. We go to something that God made to try to make that thing become so powerful that it becomes like God to us, so it satisfies something down deep in our soul that actually only God can satisfy for our soul. After all, who is it who made us? Answer? God. It's always the answer in church. God made us. He designed us. So that means He knows when we're broken, why we don't work right, what the problem is. That's why when you go to university and you don't listen to God, or you go to media and you don't listen to God, or you go to Grandpa. Sorry for picking on Grandpa. I could have picked on Grandma. I'm just going to pick on Grandpa today. Don't don't read anything into it. You go to Grandpa. And he gives you some wrong advice. And you go to the Bible and it says, but I made you. And I, I know what you need. I know what's going on in your soul and in your mind. I know how to fill it. I know how to make you happy. But you won't come to me. You won't listen to me. You're taking something that I made and you're trying to make that good thing that I made into something more than it is. What do I mean? I mean, is it nice that God gave us lots of wonderful food in the world? Answer, yeah. We're, a Wrong response to Christianity is say, I'm never supposed to enjoy food. I'm only supposed to enjoy God. That's not Christianity. We're supposed to enjoy food as food, not as God. You can't find your comfort in food. Why am I picking on food? I'm not. I got a list. Alcohol, there's actually verses that say a little bit of moderation along with oil for the skin of man was given for man's enjoyment. But but people pervert it. And they say, I'm going to take something that God meant for good as a drink. Means It means that much in my life. And I'm going to make it mean this much in my life. But it wasn't designed to do that. It can't fulfill that for you relationships oh that woman's going to bring me to glory you read the rock songs and the country music songs and it's all about how this woman is basically god or something like a goddess right and the poor fellow's invested his entire future and all of his emotions into this relationship with this woman poor gal she could never fulfill that right now Is it good to have a relationship as a man with a woman, the way the Bible says to do it properly through marriage and all the rest of that? Does it bring joy and satisfaction and happiness to a certain degree in life? And the answer is, of course, yes. Our God is good, and he knows how to make flowers for us to enjoy, and he knows how to make music for us to enjoy, but ain't none of that stuff supposed to be God. When we make it that way, that's called, you tell me. Oh, oh, you guys are listening a preacher's dream. (laughs) Enjoy what God has given you, the way God intended to be, and don't make it try to be something more than it can. And certainly never sin, but even the good things we're allowed to do, people skew them and twist them and pervert them. And it's not just that that's wrong to do. It is wrong. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's not just that it's wrong. It's that it's unwise. It makes no sense. It's going to something that's not designed for that and trying to make it fit in, and it just doesn't work. And God doesn't want us to do that. Now people are getting into fantasy. And into the gaming, I don't have time to go there. What are you trying to make the gaming become in your life? How many hours? There's a point at which it becomes an idol. Yeah, but you don't know how bored I am. That's thirst of the soul. You're trying to take a box and electronics and someone's artistic creativity and the thrill of being, and I've been in them things. I know what them things can do to you. I mean, I get, I get, woo, I go all over the place. And I'm not very good at it, so maybe that's by saving grace. Trying to make it do something for you it can't do. It's not designed to do. Music, excessive music, sports, achievement, awards, good grades, you name it, anything can be like that. We can, tur- we can turn our church activity and the ministries that we run around going and doing. We can turn that into what? Look at me. I'm busy in church. You should see me. I volunteered for 12 things. Why? You've turned into the famous Martha, who was worried and bothered about so many things. Luke chapter 10, remember? And not for the commended Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and said, I want to absorb the word of God into my soul that I may know God better because I'm seeking God first above other things. There's so many activities and experiences, young people, that are going to be laid before you. You need to understand what I'm saying here. And the word of God says, yes, you may find fun in a lot of it, but if you find too much fun in it, it will fail you. So the church is not trying to squash your happiness. It's trying to direct you into the fullness and joy of the Lord that Peter says is inexpressible and full of glory. The allurements of the world work inside the soul, but they only work temporarily. They work like sweet poison. What does sweetness do in the mouth? Ooh, that tastes good. What does poison do in the belly? Oh, that tastes bad. It feels terrible. They're constantly promising you, never satisfying you. I'll put it this way. And I, this is a quote from someone I don't remember who. We're getting close to ending here. Whatever you turn to in your hour of greatest thirst is your God. That's the spiritual fountain from which you're guzzling. And if it's not the Lord our God, it will so disappoint. Anything less than God cannot. It's not just that it does not. It cannot satisfy the human soul. It says in Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal Life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God, to taste him, to enjoy him, to go deeper into him. That's life. I feel a little more useless these days with all of my pain. I know you don't think I'm having pain, but I have pain. (laughs) but there's one thing I can do just as well now as I could do, and maybe better now than before, and that is to spend time with God. It's enjoyable. It's a delight. If you're hurting, if you're paralyzed, you're handicapped, you're recovering from surgery, you feel put on a shelf, you can thank God that he can use this time to draw you closer and closer and closer to him. Maybe I could get an amen on that because that was an important point. That was actually pretty important what I just said there. And I hope that God will really impress that upon you right now. We're Americans. We run around. We're busy. We get stuff done. We're productive. But do we know God? You know, I, I want a revival to happen. If a revival happens, it'll start in pulpits. I failed to mention that earlier. That One of the reasons why I feel so powerfully about pulpits is if a revival is ever going to happen in our land, it's going to start in pulpits, pulpits that are prayed for. That's how it'll happen. But it also means that people that are listening did really hear what God's word is saying. And the answer is that God is our glory and our joy and our happiness. And we've got to really seek after him. And if you can't do anything well, you can do that well. You can do that when it's cold outside or hot outside, when it's daylight or when it's nighttime. The great thing about that is you can pursue God anytime. I'll end with Paul's prayer towards the end of chapter three in Ephesians. He said, I'm praying that you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Don't you hate all those things in the Bible? I want you to know the love of Christ, which by the way, you can't know. (laughs) It surpasses knowledge. Wow. Pray that you'll know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. What is that? I have no idea. I haven't got there yet. I just know that in my big straw approach to God, as I'm sucking in as much as I can of him or trying to, I know that I got a lot more filling to do before I get there in my mind and my heart. And I know you do as well. And so uh, David's soul was thirsty. God is the thirst quencher. And we want to pick up on this theme and continue, Lord willing, next time, a meditation. Keep going and go deeper here and see what the Psalms say, what the New Covenant teaching says about just an earnest pursuit Of God and the blessings that come along with it. Originally, this was supposed to be one message. We'll see what the Lord does with it, but it means a lot to me because this is one of my favorite passages, and uh, I haven't even got to my favorite verse yet, into that very thought about seeing God's power and glory, and I fear I won't even be able to express it the way it needs to be expressed, but the neat thing about the Bible is anytime you're going deep in any part of the Bible, you tend to hit other parts of the Bible as well, so that's kind of what we're doing. Uh, we're going to have a song now following here at the end. Is that still true? Good. So come on down. I'll pray for us. Father, thank you so much for our music ministry, for being able to put into word and song things that are deep in our soul. Thank you for Brandon, Elias, all these great musicians, and for our congregation that sings even with a mask over their mouth so heartily. Bless us, inspire us, help us this season to give thanks, and most of all, to pursue you earnestly in our heart that we may know you deeper. We pray it the mighty name of Christ, of course. Amen.